Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. How did revolutions in the two great English-speaking nations, the U.S. and the U.K., give birth to the American Constitution? And what does that creation have to tell us today in our lives, 230 years after its ratification? We'll dig into those questions with today's guest. But first, hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. And a special tip of the hat to everybody who's enjoying our time travel adventure via YouTube. You can find me at historyauthor.com, of course, and across social media platforms. Plus, you can read my columns in the New York Sun to get my analysis of current events through the light of all I've learned from these books on the shelves behind me. One of those columns, titled It's Dangerous for January 6th Hearings to Portray Our Republic as a Fabergé Egg, includes a quote from today's guest. He's James D.R. Phillips. And he's a lawyer and visiting lecturer at the University of Sydney's Law School in Australia. He brings us two revolutions and the Constitution, how the English and American revolutions produced the American Constitution. This is the kind of book that I love. I find it very satisfying. It's like eating a great meal at a steakhouse as opposed to just grabbing some fast food. It's things to think about that you'll find, and it's really special, it's in-depth, and it doesn't lose that human element of the real people who are behind crafting the American Republic's highest law. And I guess they did a good job because it's the world's oldest constitution that is still in effect. You can visit our guest at jamesphillips.net, note that that's Phillips with one L, or on Twitter and Facebook. Okay. Now that we've arrived back in the times that try men's souls, let's join James Phillips and discover the origins of the American Republic's highest law in Two Republics and the Constitution. And here we are with James Phillips. He's joining us from Sydney, Australia, to chat about his important new book, Two Revolutions and the Constitution, How the English and American Revolutions produced the American Constitution. Thank you so much for making the time all the way from the land down under to chat with the History Authors Show, sir. Thanks, Dana. I'm really excited to be here. Well, I was glad when I got your book, when it was sent to me, because the Constitution is something that is right there in front of us. It's as easy as searching on the internet today to go and read it. It's the highest law in the land. It's the longest serving Constitution in the world. And yet I'd argue too few citizens go and even read it, even do that little Google search and reflect on the meaning of it, dig into its origins and how it's managed to endure and adapt to all of these challenges it has had over its over 200 years of being a functioning document, being amended, being flexible, but still a rigid rock at its core of protecting individual liberty. Why did you feel that it was important to write about the origins in the American Revolution and the one in the mother country in England to bring us to revolutions and the Constitution, since eagle-eyed listeners will hear that you're, you're not an American yourself, and yet you were fascinated by this document. You gave us your perspective. Why, why was it important for you to do that? 
Well, that's a great question. I'll, I'll approach it in two parts. One, why the American Constitution? And then two, why the sort of deeper history that I cover in my book, going back to the, including the English revolutions. Um, why, why the American Constitution? Because it's, I think, the fulcrum of the development of the modern uh, liberal democratic world. I mean, it's an absolute rock and foundation, not just of uh, the American polity, but of liberalism and democracy around the world. It's so important. You know, I don't know what it's like in the States. It probably isn't like this. But here in Australia, when I was at school, we studied the French Revolution more than the American Revolution. It's quite perverse. Because on any fair uh, view of history, the English Revolution and the American Revolution, and then the American Constitution, are far more consequential than the French Revolution and far more consequential than other uglier revolutions like the Russian Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, and the Nazi Revolution, if I can call it that, because I think that's what it was. Um, and then why the deeper history? Why not just look at the revolutionary period and the constitutional convention, which is the approach normally taken to a, a history of the origins of the American constitution? Well, the problem with that approach is this. The revolutionary period really began and resistance to the British really began in 1763, when after the French and Indian Wars, the British tried to increase control of America, increase tax to help pay for the cost of those wars. And from that time, there was American resistance to this attempted increase in control. So the question is, why was that? Why in 1763 did Americans already have a view that they had individualistic political rights, a high degree of independence from Britain, and that for the British Parliament or the British King to try to impose increased control on them and increased regulation of them uh, was an anathema to them and they would resist it? Well, you can only answer that question if you look back pre-1763 and consider how did American political culture develop before then. You know, it's interesting, a phrase that I didn't um, focus on enough on my first readings of the Declaration of Independence, my first reading was while I was at, at school here in Sydney, um, was the phrase that is used in, in there at one point that uh, you, the British, have infringed our right, the right, our rights under our constitution, right? Well, there's no such thing as a constitution of the 13 colonies at the time that that's written. So what did it mean? It obviously meant a set of well-defined uh, political rights in the minds, at least, of the authors of the Declaration. And my contention is that to understand the development of those rights as they were perceived by Americans, you need to go right back to the founding of the first colonies, Virginia, and um, Massachusetts Bay. And you need to look at the revolutionary uh, 17th century in England, what was then England. Britain didn't yet exist as a political construct. Because, you know, Americans sacked one king at the time of the revolution with the Declaration of Independence, but the, the English had sacked two kings in the 17th century. And the first one they'd actually put on trial 
and cut off his head. All that context is really important to understanding the political culture in pre immediately pre-revolutionary America. And that's why I look at that earlier period. You mentioned a few things there that I want to tie into my next question. And one was the French Revolution. And you say the interest in it, and maybe it's because they're speaking French and had better catering than, than we did here in the colonies. It took a while for us to get food right. But people, people do want to study that. They find that exciting. They look at the bloody revolutions. As you mentioned, they are overthrowing a republic there, the Weimar Republic, as weak as it might have been, the Nazis. And then you look at the Romanovs being slaughtered, and that's, that's very eye-catching. And you write here in Two Revolutions and the Constitution that the Americans didn't do that. They didn't rebel to remake the world that way. They didn't re they didn't rebel just to put themselves there in absolute monarch power, but rather they wanted to secure something you just alluded to there, and that's rights that were unspoken, rights that weren't written down, rights that weren't committed to paper or parchment in their case. And because they weren't written down, that made it very easy for King George to violate them because it was an unspoken gentleman's agreement, maybe you would say, but he could still exercise veto power, so to speak, over those rights. So why is that distinction important for us today and for you and your readers through you to explore here in Two Revolutions and the Constitution? Because writing it down, having, having those words there that you could point to on paper after that Google search is what, is what makes a right protected. Well, that's right. And, but looking back at the, the character of the revolutions themselves, why do I think that um, uh, revolutions that seek to, uh, that at least notionally, or, you know, they're articulated as being uh, largely, let's say, utopian, trying to bring about a fundamentally changed world, like in particular the communist revolutions and, the, and in its own perverse way, the, the Nazi revolution, we tend to think of creating an equal society as a noble aspiration, but the idea of elevating a particular race above others as part of some sort of continuity with a, a mythical period in North myth mythology or something as being, um, as being an odious aspiration, and I don't disagree with that, but um, you see the devastation that those utopian revolutions produce. You know, in the case of the Nazi revolution, if you include the Second World War, perhaps, uh, what, 40 million dead or something. And in, in the case of the Chinese revolution, perhaps 60 million dead. And, and the Russian revolution, and also an enormous number. Cambodia, a third of the population. Just terrible devastation. I think one of the challenges for us in a liberal society is to have aspirations and to keep working towards them and not to become complacent, but at the same time, not to let a utopian ideology uh, cause us to destroy society and cause um, terrible devastation and, and at the end of the day, not to work. So I actually like the fact that this was a, um, a revolution which had, um, uh, you know, the ideal of uh, empowering people, empowering individuals and avoiding oppression rather than, uh, which was, if you like, an extension of um, the political culture of America at the time and of things that were popular, or not popular, but were being developed in Enlightenment political philosophy, um, but that wasn't actually utopian and didn't seek to destroy the world. And then your, your second point about um, 
writing it down. Well, yeah, that's important. And because you need to give these things a bit of, um, make them a bit concrete. You know, one of the strange things, I actually think that one of the reasons for that the British got themselves into a point where Brexit happened, and I don't think that Brexit was a bad thing personally, um, is the lack of clarity around their constitution. You know, um, at the core of their constitution, which is an unwritten constitution, is the idea normally of parliamentary supremacy. And yet, initially, there was a referendum in Britain to approve going into the common market. But when it came to Britain entering into the um, constitutional treaties that made the European court and the European parliament and even the European executive superior to those in the UK that subordinated the UK's political institutions to European institutions, parliament just did that. It didn't even consult the people. So you have a a constitution where the core principle is supposed to be parliamentary supremacy on the basis that parliament represents the people. But then the Supreme Parliament goes and by its own decision without consulting the people, makes itself no longer supreme. It subordinates itself to um, the institutions of the European Union. That's a very weird constitutional development. It's not surprising to me that that produced some pushback. And that is, if you like, Uh, You could see that as a consequence of an unwritten constitution, just a lack of clarity about how it should all work. Yeah, it becomes very ad hoc and messy. And we'll, well, we don't know what fits this situation. Whereas here, something even as simple as a treaty, one of the reasons why the Iran deal was able to be canceled with a snap of a finger by President Trump was that President Obama didn't put it through the Senate and have it ratified, which under the Constitution would have made it much harder to get rid of that deal. And it's because it likely wouldn't have passed in the Senate. And so he rolled the dice a little bit on that one. But that was the framework that was put in. And the, obviously, the EU was was much a much bigger, much more significant treaty. But still, it, if you have the mechanisms written down, then everybody knows. And it's fair. It's just like playing from playing a board game when you're a kid. It's everyone knows what the rules are here it is in the rule book and that's what these men because they were all men back then set out to do when they framed the american constitution i i wanted to ask you about that king you were saying about the english rump parliament that's in 1649 they try charles the first and they establish a republic and it lasts just 12 years and so i wanted to ask you what do america's founders learn then from the failures that they had there when it comes time for them to declare their own king, King George, a tyrant and establish their own Republic. How did they do it? How did they apply those lessons so that it would endure their Republic and it has endured and would avoid the mistakes of the one in England that just fell apart after 12 years? Yeah. And you know, there's a point of political, before I get to answer that main question, there's a point of, um, rhetoric, um, of political rhetoric, it actually, I didn't have many moments when I woke up in the middle of the night um, with a light bulb going on when I was writing the book, but I had one of them on this very point. I realized that the Declaration of Independence pretty much tracks some of the language of the charges against Charles I. And that's very interesting because a number of scholars have observed that the Declaration of Independence was heavily influenced by the English Declaration of Rights of 1689, which led to the English Bill of Rights. But I'm not aware of anyone. There, there, there probably is someone, but I haven't read of anyone who's actually traced it back further to the charges against Charles I. And yet that is where the language of um, T. 
tyranny and express and the use of the word tyranny appears doesn't appear in the Declaration of um, of Rights, and it struck me that the in the middle of the night that the the, the language um, uh, of the Declaration somewhat tracks the charges against Charles I. Now, um, I don't think that um, Jefferson, let's say, is the primary author, not by no means the sole author of the Declaration of Independence, had the charges against Charles I with him. He's known to be have been heavily influenced by the Declaration of Rights, the English Declaration of Rights. I haven't read it, uh, of him having been influenced by the charges against Charles I, but I think he probably was. He is said to have had a very good memory. And um, given that the purpose of the Declaration was, at least in, in large part, to uh, do something similar to what Thomas Paine was doing, to try to sever the, the sentimental and customary connections of of, of British Americans with to the king, I, th I think that's one of the reasons he used those uh, Jefferson memory, even if he wasn't conscious of it, uh, went back to the charges against Charles I. Anyway, to your question, this really comes, I think, to the extent of um, how, in a way, the real the point about uh, democracies and, and is to make them pluralistic, to distribute power fairly widely. And I think the core answer to your question as to why the English Republic, uh, usually called the Commonwealth, but I call it the Republic because that's what it was in terms of political science. It was a Republic. It was based largely on the wishes of the leaders of the Puritan community in England and on some um, merchants and financiers, and particularly in the city of London. And it a large part of the what we would now call the polity, let's say the people with some degree of cultural or political influence in Britain, weren't particularly on board with those parts of the community. They were upset with the fact that Charles I had tried to um, impose taxation, not without representation, but without Parliament approving it. And he'd otherwise circumvented uh, Parliament as the representative institution of, let's say, the people with cultural and property in in England, but the, the wider community still felt a connection with monarchy. And when they, they started to become disaffected with the Republic, it was very natural for them, I think, to look to be receptive to the restoration of Charles I's son, James, uh, sorry, Charles I's son, Charles II, as, um, as the English king. So the short answer to your question is that the uh, support base of the English Republic wasn't wide enough. And of course, the support base, if you like, of the um, American Republic is, is very wide because it's very democratic. And from the beginning, uh, it had a very wide electoral franchise. We wouldn't say it was wide today because it didn't include slaves. And in, in many uh, states, it didn't include free black people and it didn't include women. But by the standards of the late um, 18th century, it was a very wide electrical, electoral franchise, and of course the franchises continued to grow. So it's very important that, um, that um, political institutions to be really resilient, not necessarily to be efficient, Dean, of course, because democracies aren't always efficient, but to be resilient, if they, if they have very wide support in the community, that's important, and that's what the, at least in a political sense, um, that's what the American Republic has had and the English Republic didn't have. 
Well, Winston Churchill said that the democracy was the worst form of government, except for all the others that have been tried from time to time, wasn't it? So uh, <laughs> a nice quote. And as yeah. a Greek American, I certainly appreciate the idea of, of democracy. And we are very proud of our ancestors having having invented it, as we like to say. And I, I'm thinking, though, of you writing two revolutions and the Constitution as a practical matter, I guess you'd say. And how much was written by these men? And uh, some of these books that people could see if they're watching on YouTube behind me, you know, the Madison bio is this thick. I think it's 480 pages. And I highlighted just the side and the side that uh, to show myself where the index was because it was so big. The index alone is, a, is about half an inch thick, a couple of, a couple of centimeters. And so I wonder as a practical matter, when you were going through and wanted to answer questions as fundamental as why did these men do something so revolutionary instead of just going with what they already knew? How did you distill all of that down to a book that is, is a fast read? It keeps, your, it keeps your attention. It's really working your mind out and, and helping you see it. How do you distill all that down? Because these men all wrote so much. Yeah, well, it's one of the exciting things. And one, one of the things that's in a way easy, but as you say, the Balkan material is is quite large, um, but it's quite easy in that the American materials are really well organized. So they're easy to, at least they're easy to access. The British materials, partly again, because they don't have a written constitution and they don't have the pride in their constitution that Americans have or that Americans until recently have, have had, um, their, their materials are, are not so well organized. Um, so the, the, the research part of that was more difficult. What I decided I was going to do was a couple of things. One, I was going to keep the book to 60,000 words because I wanted it to be, I, I hoped that people would pick it up who wouldn't pick up a, um, you know, a 200,000 word book. So that was a deliberate discipline on, on, on myself to try to keep it um, uh, concise. The second thing I really wanted to do um, was to try to work principally from the primary documents, all the core documents of the period and to work out from there into supporting documents, uh, like obviously things like the Federalist Papers, but a whole lot of other things as, as, as well. Um, because, you know, there are people who've um, been reading these materials for 30 years. I, I was reading intensively for this book for uh, a couple of years and I'd read more generally about it for a long time, but um, I'm, I'm not an academic and I didn't want it to be a book written to counter the most recent academic pronouncements on the subject. So I wanted it to be um, uh, accurate and to be focused, and I thought, therefore, I'll stay particularly focused on the primary documents, which doesn't, as you know, mean that I quote a lot from them or that it's a legalistic book. But I, I, um, I, I did try to stay fairly focused on those, and then I worked out from there. And, and I used a style of writing, which I've used since I was at school, if you like, to read the materials and then to put them aside and to try to tell the story so that the... Um, story doesn't become too bogged down in the detail and you can keep the, the narrative moving along. I found that reading and that, that's why it stuck with me and I quoted it there in that one New York Sun column. You mentioned something in passing about Americans in the past having really revered the Constitution. We have a Constitution Day, which I think you'd be hard pressed to find many people marking or knowing exists much anymore, much less celebrating it. And 
it's something that John Adams wrote, one of the many things President Adams said, and I'll, I'll quote him a couple of times here. And if this is 1798, so it's very early on, and he says, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. And to me, that quote, I wanted to ask you what it says to you, because having written two revolutions and the Constitution, especially in view of the Enlightenment at the time, and how differently the founders would have thought of the term religious and what it meant to them as opposed to the connotation it has today, what, what does that quote mean to you? And how do you look at the U.S. today, especially with the idea of a belief in any God? And many of these, Adams is a Unitarian, which is just there, there's somebody up there. It's pretty light, locale, as far as, as far as a religion goes. How do you view the U.S. today in light of that John Adams quote and the Constitution? Is it still something that because, because the, the morality in the country is very subjective now, something we've lost our connection with? Well, it's a big question. The Adam's emphasis on the religious is perhaps a sort of a new, a particularly New England perspective on it, if you like. Uh, and, you know, we talked before about the first English Republic. You know, this had a particular influence on New England because they saw, of course, an English Republic where the leaders were Puritans as being a very good thing. And, um, and many of them, um, the first Puritans had left Britain before the, Engl the first English Revolution or the, the English Republic, but more of them left afterwards. Um, the, um, the, the colonies as a whole, the 13 colonies, though, um, had different religious perspectives and, and religious perspectives were important to their view of the world to different degrees. For example... As you probably know, Georgia was founded with no sort of religious context. It was founded as a place where people who, you know, lost their fortunes or whatever could go to restart. The Carolinas were established under a, a constitution, initially as a, a charter, which John Locke, the great political philosopher, had some input into, deliberately to be multi-denominational because they wanted to attract immigrants not just from Britain but from other places in Europe. Um, you know, in the middle colonies, uh, there, there was um, religion, but they weren't as centred on religion as the New England colonies. Um, it's very interesting, the, you know, Cincinnatus, after whom Cincinnati obviously is named, um, was the founder of the Roman Republic. Publius, the name which the Federalists, Hamilton, Madison and Jay signed their very important Federalist papers, was the founder of the Roman Republic. A stronger idea at the Constitutional Convention, and certainly in Virginia, the leading colony of the day, than a religious framework for good citizenship in a republic was actually Roman, uh, the sort of a somewhat romanticised idea of the Roman Republican citizen. And Washington himself consciously, it seems, adopted those virtues as a, as, as a, a model. You, you I mean, no, there was a, a society of um, officers of the Revolutionary War who, who called themselves the Cincinnati. And Washington, at the end of the day, did do exactly what Cincinnatus did. Cincinnatus led an army that protected the Republic and then retired to his farm and, and, and lived a, a modest life and rejected riches and, and honours. 
and Washington gave up control of the revolutionary of the Continental Army at the only time it was a, a, the only a national institution in the Young Republic, went back to his farm and then became politically engaged again. And then at the end of his presidency, went back to his farm. So I would say that the ideal of the, the virtuous politically engaged citizen was very, very important to the founders. To the extent to which that had a religious aspect probably more important to the New England founders than to founders in other parts of the country. I was thinking of some of these other threats to the Republic because you mentioned George Washington and he faces the Newburgh conspiracy, which I discussed with Professor David Head, Dr. David Head in his book, and a little bit murky, not sure if these Continental Army veterans were really going to march on on Washington they were, they were or they were just blowing off steam and angry, but still... Uh, from a from a small thing like that, a great order can can persuade and, and cause bad news for a republic, strangle the American republic in its cradle, as it were. And you have Shays Rebellion, which is is a little pretty much forgotten. You have you have things like this that happen even even in World War II. You have the the so-called Wall Street plot with Smedley Butler, who's a former Marine general. And again, these things are murky. We don't know how far they how far they could have gone or how far they did go. We have Aaron Burr, right? I've talked with David O. Stewart many times about his book about him, American Emperor, the threat to Jefferson's Republic. I've done all these as interviews, so I encourage you to go check them out in the archives. But there have been these threats throughout, and Washington is really the one who he he stands athwart that. He, he if had he changed, had he not taken that Cincinnatus model, he really could have walked out. And yet he applies the Constitution. He's not he's not there writing it. He's not the man of great letters that that's that's scripting it. How important was it that he did apply what was written, that he did understand and share the goals of a guy like Madison, who was really his brain and did his did his writing for him and would help him help him. You know, punch this up for me, as we would say today. Ghost write this for me there, James. How does that inform people here who read Two Revolutions and the Constitution and helps them to understand Washington's key role there as the indispensable man? Yeah, well, I pretty much stopped the book with the Constitutional Convention, but it's massively important. And, and because, you know, and it's a bit related to what we talked about before with uh, utopian revolutions. It's one thing to have the ideas. And the American Constitution, at the end of the day, let's be clear, is mainly just a, a framework and a, a mechanism for a system of government, right? So you can say in that sense, it's, um, it's not prescriptive as to what the Republic will do. It sets up a mechanism to protect the citizens of the Republic and a system of government which ought not to succumb to tyranny. That was one of its express objectives of, of, the, of the founders, to make it a sort of a tyrant-proof system of government, which is partly related to what you're talking about. But when you move into the execution phase on any project, the project from concept and writing it all down, and in this case, setting up the mechanism to making it real, that transition is vitally important. And um, I'd say America was very lucky to have um, Washington there to govern in accordance with the Constitution, but also with the help of Madison and, and of course, Hamilton, very important um, figure in, in, in this phase to the establishment of the system of government. Uh, we're very, very lucky to have them. And the, the, 
he and, and, and Madison and, and, and Hamilton were all people who'd recognised in particular the deficiencies of the period of the Articles of Confederation and recognised that the system of government in America needed not to be just federal, not just a, some sort of minimal framework for cooperation of the 13 states, but to also have a national element where the national government had its own direct powers against the people. And that was very, very important because at the time that the, of, of the Declaration of Independence, the conception was really 13 colonies become 13 states. They need to cooperate for the purpose of executing the war um, of independence. But uh, generally, we're not after another national government. We like a more local form of um, representative government. And it was the failures of the Confederation that gave um, impetus to the vision of people like Hamilton and Madison, supported by Washington, that the government needed to be also partly national. And it's hardly any surprise because, of course, both Hamilton and, um, and Washington were in the army, and the army suffered terribly from the states not meeting their commitments to it. The states were... were Troops would be requisitioned by the by Congress, the sort of organ of government established under the Articles of Confederation. Money would be requested, and they wouldn't come. The, the French ended up supplying a lot of the resources for the, 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 the war. The, unfortunately, the American response to supplying, to supplying the resources was pretty checkered. They wanted a revolution, but they wanted it on the cheap. <laughs> that's that's, that's pretty states. true. That's yeah. pretty true. You're enjoying my conversation with James Phillips. He's author of Two Revolutions and the Constitution, How the English and American Revolutions Produced the American Constitution. You can visit him at jamesphillips.net or follow him on Twitter and Facebook. Note that that's Phillips with one L. John Furling, who's the author of Winning Independence, The Decisive Years of the Revolutionary War, 1778 to 1781, writes of two revolutions and the Constitution, this important book teaches about the building blocks of history. It demonstrates how ideas spring from experience and events, and from what historical actors concluded were earlier mistakes. In this instance, the presumed flaws in the first state and national constitutions. James Phillips, I want to focus on the term building blocks there from John Furling's endorsement of two revolutions and the constitution. Casual readers, historians, journalists, they tend to focus on those big set pieces when looking at the U.S. constitution. They maybe just look at the Bill of Rights and that's written after, that's, that's separate from the main document. What were some of those smaller building blocks that readers will learn about in your book without which the American Republic might have crumbled like so many before it. Perhaps it lasts only a dozen years like the English Republic. How was it that it managed to endure because they learned lessons when they wrote it? Well, I, I think the building blocks go back to the fundamental circumstances of the establishment of the colonies. And, uh, I, and that, so that's where I start the book. I start the book with the... Uh, establishment of Virginia and then of Massachusetts Bay and the, and the earliest colonies. And the reason that's so important is this, to send a, a message back from uh, Jamestown to London and to get a response, 
would take at least three months if you were lucky. Uh, so communications were pretty hopeless. From the beginning, the colonies needed to have a significant degree of capacity to make decisions on the ground to make it locally, to make them locally. And you can draw pretty much a straight line between there and American political culture in 1763 at the beginning of the revolutionary period, where Americans insist we make decisions locally. It becomes not just a matter of necessity under a small, from a small group of people on the edge of the wilderness, as they used to call it, it becomes dressed up in, 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 and, and institutionalized over time and becomes more complex. But there's pretty much a straight line. Another thing about the very the initial founding of the colonies was this. They weren't established as state enterprises. You know, I'm sitting here in Sydney, Australia, about three and a half kilometres from where the first Australian colony was established. It was established as a state enterprise, fundamentally different. It was established partly because of American independence, but that's another story. Um, and um, the model on which the American colonies were established was private enterprise, low tax, significant degree of local independence. Sound familiar? You know, I mean, the, those things echoes, echo in American um, political culture today. Um, and there they were right at the beginning as a matter of necessity. You know, England at the time wasn't uh, a particularly powerful and rich country. It was this little country on the edge of Europe. The powers of the day were Spain and France. They were rich. Uh, but England, England wasn't. Of course, the world as a whole was vastly poorer than it is today. The English simply couldn't have afforded to have established these estate colonies, but in any event, they didn't. So I go back right, right back to there. And then I talk about a bit about how the um, English uh, sacking two of their kings in the, uh, in, in the 1600s influenced American political culture. The second time, the English Revolution towards the end of the 1600s, you know, there are major rebellions in New England, Maryland, New York, where uh, Americans say, yeah, we agree with the people back there in England. Uh, James II has been trying to push us around too much. We want our independence. Um, then you go through the 1700s up to the revolutionary period. And in the revolutionary period itself, after the Declaration of Independence, um, there's an attempt to replace Congress, which was at that time really a revolutionary representative body, if you like, of the 13 colonies with something a bit more formal under the Articles of Confederation. It doesn't really establish the United States as a separate political entity. It really acts as an agent of the, the colonies. And as I've already said, the colonies often disregarded. Um, at the same time, some of the early, earliest uh, state constitutions are radically democratic, and they lead to things like uh, uh, popular parliaments uh, uh, forgiving all debts and, in, and, and causing financial instability, which rather horrifies the people who were at the Constitutional Convention in 1787, many of whom were people of uh, property. So you can trace this, um, the influence of both the building blocks, I think, right back from the beginning of the founding of the colonies, and you can chase, trace the learning of mistakes bit or the learning from events through how um, 
the English Revolutionary Period, what the English learned and what, what American Englishmen and British Americans learned from all that. And then you can trace it also through the mistakes of the revolutionary period between the Declaration of Independence and the drafting of the Constitution. So what I tried to do in, in the book as much as possible was to let those events speak for themselves and to somewhat explain them, but not to be heavy-handed telling the reader what they should think, but to set out the landscape which they could uh, survey and form their own views on. I wanted to ask you about a New York Sun column that I wrote where I quoted you, and I tried to take a broader perspective of the riots at the Capitol, the U.S. Capitol, on January 6th of 2021. And to me, looking with a historian's eye, even not that far removed from it, it was how it cast the American Republic here as a delicate Fabergé egg, and it casts our democracy as only only coming within, maybe if they had two guys with the dumb horn hat you know, going in there and smashing things up and making a mess of themselves and the waving the, of the Confederate flag and the, these worst elements of America that we saw there that day. But as Tom Clancy, the novelist, said of 9-11, he said, that was a bloody nose to knock down the Twin Towers, but you don't die. America's not going to be destroyed by a bloody nose. And so that was what was my perspective, not to downplay anything that happened then. But I wanted to ask you, because I did quote you in there, in light of having written two revolutions and the Constitution, how did you see the safeguards against tyranny that were so important to these long, long dead founders, but that they put in the American Constitution? How did you see those functioning as intended on that day? And by all means, if you have if you have something to add or something to quibble with with my column, I, I could take it. The important thing is that all the readers hear it and that you, you enjoyed the quotes that I chose because I thought that they were important. January the 6th, clearly a riot and clearly a great affront to uh, the institutions of America. Uh, was it an insurrection? Um, possibly it met the definition of an insurrection. Um, did some of the people participating in it think they were participating in a coup? Um, it's, it's possible. Was it really part of a coup? Um, you know, definitely not. I mean, a coup in America would have to have um, many different components to it, right? Uh, and in a way, um, you know, causing a, a riot at the Capitol would be pretty marginal, if even relevant, to the enterprise. You'd have to somehow try to um, get the military on your side. You'd have to somehow try to get the media uh, on your side or at least to shut it down. You would have to try to neutralise um, uh, people in government. Uh, and you don't also have to try to neutralise the members of um Congress in some way. And you'd have to do this not just at the federal national level, but really also at the state level. I mean, it would be a massive and very complicated thing to pull off a coup in America. I think it's probably pretty much um, uh, coup proof. I, 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 I find it very difficult to conceive. And certainly beyond the, um, uh, the, the executional logistical capabilities of um, the people who were involved in January the 6th. So, yeah, it's, I don't know to what extent people who try to characterise it as part of a seriously attempted coup are just engaging in political hyperbole or to what extent they believe it. But, but I would say that um, th that activity could only ever have been part of a, of a real coup attempt. And there isn't much evidence of uh, 
of a coup attempt that included all those other limbs, as far as I'm aware. But on the broader point, I'm, you know, one of the things we all know about that the American Constitution includes checks and balances. I put it in, 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 in this context in a slightly different way. The American Constitution achieves a very wide distribution of power, you know, across the states, the national government, then across all the organs of the, um, the, the national government, the, you know, judiciary, Congress, the executive, and, and then the institutions standing behind it, like the, like the military. Um, and that dispersal, dispersal of power is very important. You know, the, the negative of the checks and balances is, of course, that in political and day-to-day -day terms, they somewhat translate to friction. Not checks and balances is sort of a constitutional concept. Day-to-day um, -day life, it means there's a lot of friction in the constitution. And that has its downside um, when it comes to um, substantial reform and substantial change, let's say. But a big part of its upside, and the reason it was designed like that, is to was to make the constitution pretty much tyrant-proof. Well, and one reason I mentioned Tom Clancy is he did write the book, I think it was The Sum of All Fears, but where he had a plane hijacked and thrown into the into the Capitol building when there was going to be the inauguration of a new vice president. And that's one of the times he said, you have the whole chain of command there. You have a designated survivor somewhere, but of course his, his Jack Ryan character managed to survive and his vice president. And, and he said, if I had written the idea of nine 11, that this would have happened with four planes, my editor would have said, Oh, come, come back to me. Uh, this is, this is too fantastic. And that was their goal on nine 11. But even if they had succeeded as he lays out in the fictional form, the states create the federal government, not the other way around. So even if, God forbid, in some catastrophe, we did lose all of our members of Congress and we did lose all of the all of the executive branch and the Supreme Court, there's mechanisms there to have new elections to replace them. We know when one congressman dies, we have a special election. We know that the senators, when one passes away, they're reappointed by their governors or they're elected, depending on the states. So... I think that's one of the one of the masterful things here in the U.S. Constitution and something great to look back at in your book is even though we're all steeped on movies like Seven Days in May, which is a fantastic movie, it is just a movie. And to put all of that together and to, to overcome all those checks and balances, it's it's really by design impossible and very difficult and as frustrating as it is as you just said for us with that friction where sometimes we pine for what they used to call the man on the white horse in those days we we pine maybe for the oliver cromwell is going to say get rid of this messy democracy or or pick the pick the dictator of your negative choice in your worst moment the constitution ensures that that's not going to happen and yeah. I'll, I'll go ahead i'll, I'll let you respond to that and, no and, and this is really important and it, it has not just in terms of um, making America a society, which albeit that it's going through, you know, some some challenges at the moment. The idea is that it's centered on its citizens as individuals, not on the the, the ruler as the embodiment of, of the nation. This is important in the economic sphere as well. You know, one of the reasons that America is... Um, you know, it did a lot to invent the 20th century, and now it's doing a lot to invent the 21st century. You might say, for better or for worse, when you think about some of the ne negative consequences of social media and the like. But that innovation keeps happening in America is also because 
you know, the economic life is very dispersed. The political life is very dispersed and power, as we've just been discussing, is really very dispersed. And the same, in the, the same is true in the economy. You know, one of the reasons that um, you could say that the reason the Soviet Union failed perhaps um, wasn't just that it was it ended up being a sort of a totalitarian slave state, it was perhaps even more so that its um, economy failed. And its economy failed partly because they tried to impose the same sort of Leninist construct on the economy as they tried to impose on the polity, which was central planning and centralized um, centralization of economic force. And through human history, people who've, who've got a lot of political power tend to want also to have the riches and, and the economic power. But keeping these things dispersed is just really important. You can think of uh, uh, political power in, in America as being decentralized and networked, if you like. And you can perhaps think of, of economic um, power as, as in the same sort of way as being um, you know, a vast and complex network and, and, and therefore more amenable to disruption. I'm not saying that there aren't powerful vested interests in America and that perhaps you know, that some of them many many people would say are too powerful, but at the same time, it still has the capacity for disruption and innovation. And so it's a, a, you know, this pluralism in both the economic life and the political life of the country, very important. Associate Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who taught at my alma mater, Rutgers University, by the way, the State University of New Jersey, a little shout out there for my Scarlet Knights. She created a stir some years back with a line plucked from one of her speeches after Egypt's revolution during the Arab Spring. She said, quote, I would not look to the U.S. Constitution if I were drafting a constitution in the year 2012, unquote. And she went on to suggest some more recent examples that might meet Egypt's needs. Mm -hmm. Say you are charged with writing a new constitution. Somebody rings you up there. James Phillips, and they say, okay, we need you to help you. Putin's gone in Russia, let's say, or another nation that doesn't have this shared Anglo-American legacy decides we need a new highest governing, governing law, and we want it to last just as long and be just as flexible and have that hard, flexible combination of protecting individual rights as the U.S. Constitution. What lessons from writing two revolutions and the Constitution would you apply to the job of ensuring individual rights for this fictional country, not only in the short term, but so that they're able to endure and keep those safeguards against all challenges, foreign and domestic? Well, I think when she made that comment, she was focusing on, because of course her career and her motivation was largely about trying to, let's say, advance the rights uh, of uh, people who historically hadn't been um, politically empowered in America. Let's put it in, in, sort of in those terms. So her emphasis was very much on individual uh, rights, but not in the context of, uh, say, the, the Bill of Rights, the, the, the First Amendments to the Constitution, but as conceived post the Second World War, post the United Nations and, and all that. So she would have wanted a constitution. And I think in that quote, she referred, one of the documents she referred to was the Constitution of South Africa, which, yeah. which has um, its first section is about, um, I think, a list of over 20 human rights. 
So that's her perspective. She thinks that I, I, my inference would be that the, you know, whereas the American Constitution largely establishes a framework and a system of government, um, and then the, the Bill of Rights is, is tacked onto it, and the Bill of Rights is partly about protecting citizens from government and partly about rights of uh, Americans as individuals, but, but largely in the British tradition, protecting citizens from government is a big part of the emphasis. Um, she wants a more mm, sort of proactive version of um, individual human rights in the Constitution, I think, is her perspective. Um, and this ties back a bit to our earlier discussion, Dean, about um, the, the, the virtue of citizen uh, politically engaged, you know, and there was a risk in the early republic, and it was probably expressly a part of the perspective, certainly of the Virginian delegates, that the um, republic would be led by um, men of property who were doing this as an act of public service, but whose perspective would inevitably, to some extent, of course, we would say be that of um, men of property. And she's arguing for a somewhat, let's say, more universalist idea of human rights at the heart of the Constitution. So that's a, um, you know, a reasonable perspective. How do you achieve the um, substitute for that, um, what we would now think perhaps is a somewhat romantic or perhaps even archaic view of the virtuous citizen as a leader of the Republic in an, in a, in an idealised view of the Roman Republic and an aspiration for the new Republic. How do you achieve that now? Well, that's a difficult question because, as you know, I, th I think I'm right in saying it's certainly true in countries like Australia and Britain, and I think it's true in America. The political parties are not so much sort of um, mass, you know, widely membership-based organisations anymore. They're more like political franchises. And we saw there was a coup in recent American history. It wasn't on January the 6th. It was perhaps Trump's coup on the Republican Party. Um, we saw that he was able to sort of capture that franchise, which he wouldn't have been able to do in a sense if it was a more, you know, if it had a very broad, broad base of politically engaged um, members. Perhaps it's become a bit more like a, a, a political franchise now. Uh, the progressive There's a little, if I could interrupt you, uh, not to interrupt you, but... Uh, you said that about the coup in the parties and it reminds me of the 2008 nomination where Barack Obama comes out of yeah. nowhere, uh, beats the establishment candidate and, and uh, Hillary Clinton still held all those super delegates, which is meant to try to help yeah. to help avoid her losing that nomination that year. Yeah. And that was the establishment that was not Democratic. And the, the Democrats certainly with the with the capital D said, no, you can't do that. The people have voted yeah. for this guy over you. Sorry, you can't use this undemocratic process to steal the nomination, basically, is yeah. this the way that they were putting it in their party. So it, interesting that you point that out. Here we had the Republican and Democratic parties yeah. in subsequent elections ha have this way that even though they're not governed by the Constitution, they were pulled back to that that notion of democracy yeah. and voting for who you wanted, even when the people, as you said, the, the moneyed interests, certainly, and the, the landowners and the powerful, important, smart people don't like it. Yeah. No, that's absolutely right. And so, and then the progressive perspective, of course, is well, you try to capture the cultural institutions, and um, and and then use the law as a as a um, as a means of enforcing um, your view of uh, human rights and the and the like. 
So, um, you know, the, the answer to these questions, I'd say, is um, still in flux, but to a significant degree, uh, a fundamental change from the time of, from not just the late, um, you know, 1700s, but through the um, 1800s and the early um, 20th century, is perhaps that we're, as a citizenry, Americans are less engaged directly in their in their politics and 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 their parties and we've moved more to this franchise model which is more susceptible of cult of capture and towards control of cultural institutions and uh litigation and, uh, as means of trying to resolve these issues one of the striking things about the origins of american democracy which we haven't really touched on is not just that the uh, the colonies became the states had a substantial degree of representative government and substantial independence even before the revolution, but that this democratic, um, these democratic practices in America went right down to the town level. People, even if they weren't engaged at the colonial level, were often very engaged at the town level in uh, democratic institutions. This stuff was, you know, really deep in the DNA of Americans by the time of the revolution, and to some degree, I think we've probably lost that now. Yeah, they tend to focus on the federal, and that's that's something I want people to pick up here, your book, certainly, and check out, because you see James Madison, who you call somebody the father of the Constitution, and you just figure he had all the answers, and he was very, very smart, but you go a little bit, touch upon things like his evolution from being somebody who wants Virginia to remain in that poll position to becoming somebody who agrees, yeah, we do need a stronger federal government, and the reasons behind that. But I want people to pick up the books. I won't, I won't give all of it away. I'll close with one final question, and that's that second John Adams quote that I mentioned earlier. And I want you to think about it and all the listeners and viewers to think about it in light of two revolutions and the Constitution. John Adams had a lot of cynical moods, as did his son, John Quincy Adams. And in one of them, he wrote, we have not men fit for the times. We are deficient in genius, education, in travel, fortune, in everything. So there he's, he's painting a pretty grim picture of the people that he sees around him when he's in power. And to me, I think that's something we can definitely relate to today. We look at people, especially in modern life with the social media you mentioned. I am fond of saying that there was that old quote, no man is a hero to his valet. And now thanks to TV and social media and 24 hour news cable, we're, we're all valets now. So we see every little thing that anybody in power might do. And that familiarity can breed contempt. And we think that's a dimwit. You know, uh, the Joe Biden, whatever people may think of him or any other president, they can't even fall off a bike. Or if Gerald Ford couldn't hit his head without, without there being 10 cameramen there, right? You, you can't have a private moment. So in closing, why should people pick up two revolutions and the Constitution to get inspired to realize these weren't magic supermen back then who who crafted this document that has endured so long and that has helped America and really the world prosper. But they were flawed. They wrote a document that could be amended because they knew that they couldn't possibly have the final mm -hmm. word on everything. Why should people pick up your book as we seek to create that more perfect union that you alluded to at the very top of our interview about this fine book? Well, Dean, I'd put it like this. You, want to, you need to understand the Constitution so you know what it says and, and how the system it established works, but also so that you know what we've touched on a couple of times, which is that it does establish essentially a mechanism 
it's up to Americans as citizens to make it real and to make it work. It doesn't provide, you know, the government. It provides a system for choosing the government and a system for getting rid of you know, the government and, 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 and representatives. So you, you really want to understand that. Um, and I think in order to understand that, you need to understand the deep context in which it was conceived. You know, I worked for uh, as a lawyer for a long, long time, and what used to drive me nuts was when people would ask you to solve a problem for them, but they'd only give you what they thought were the relevant facts, right? <laughs> and my analogy here would be perhaps with they give you the, the, the highlights of the revolutionary period. Uh, but my point is, if you want to understand why what happened in the revolutionary period did, you need to go back and try to understand American political culture as it had formed up to the time of the American political, um, the American Revolution. And that's what I've attempted to do, to give you a context where you can not only understand um, why the document is as it is, but the, 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 the values that the people who had it um, uh, held dear and to then reflect on, you know, what, what we as, well, I'm not an American citizen, but what you as citizens can do to help to um, America through this um, rather polarised uh, time. Because my very strong view as an outside observer is that um, it's going to be very much about empowering the same centre, because there's a lot of crazy stuff coming from each periphery in America now. Um, but the whole country hasn't gone mad. Um, so... I hope when Americans uh, reflect on, on where they are now, they'll think of their constitution as highly relevant to that. And if they want to understand it, they need to understand its deep context. And I hope my book will help with that. Well, there you go. From James Phillips, who's all the way down under in Australia, writing a letter to us here in the form of this book uh, by fellow American citizens that are out there in two revolutions and the constitution. If he wrote it for us, then at least I think we can do is pick up our copy and ourselves and read them. And if you have somebody who's, who's confused about these things, down about these things, even enjoys the history of the revolutionary period, never really thought about the constitution, pick up two copies, three copies, give them to a friend. I'll certainly be recommending it around. And I know I'll be going back and citing it maybe in future New York Sun columns. I have an interview coming up with James Golden on WABC for July 4th that I am certainly going to be mentioning your fine book, James Phillips. I really enjoyed it. I love to think, but it wasn't painful thinking. This was not calculus. This was important, enjoyable, and it made me look at the Constitution in a whole new way. I know this book will stick with me. Thank you so much for showing us the handiwork of James Madison and others, how and why it has endured for over two centuries as a tool of governing. Thank you so much and enjoy the rest of your day. You have a long day ahead of you. We're, we're on opposite poles, so the time is, is very <laughs> off. I, I appreciate you waking up early so you could speak to me in the afternoon here. Thank you so much, Dean. It was a great discussion. Again, the book is Two Revolutions and the Constitution, How the English and American Revolutions Produced the American Constitution. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at the historyauthor.com page for this episode. By buying a book through us, you help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My sincere thanks to James Phillips for joining us all the way from Sydney, Australia, to give us this in-depth look at the world's longest active constitution 
and how it's endured that long, thanks to the revolutions on both sides of the Atlantic. Visit him at jamesphillips.net. Again, that's Phillips with one L, or on Twitter and Facebook. Plus, do check out the historyauthor.com page for this episode if you want to click through to my New York Sun column, which is informed by those quotes from our guest today. If you enjoyed watching this conversation, please do subscribe at our YouTube and Rumble channels for future journeys in the Wayback Machine. And you can visit historyauthor.com for my social media accounts, as well as over 250 interviews. You're sure to find one in there that you enjoy and that hopefully not only entertains you, but tells you something you didn't know about how humanity got to be where it is today. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio or wherever you enjoyed this journey into yesterday. Until that next trip into the past together, on behalf of James Phillips, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular.